Sure. Uh, my name is Lee Shaker. I'm an assistant professor of communication here at Portland State. Uh, I study media politics and geography, um, which is a complicated way of saying. Sometimes I study uh, how changes in the media environment affect cities and politics in the United States, and some of my research, uh, research is focused actually on uh, international communication, development communication, uh, and bringing communication technologies from the developed world uh, into uh, developing countries uh, for strategic purposes. Part of the research I do is uh, focused on figuring out ways to attract audiences in environments of choice. And so one of, one of the major conditions or changes in the media environment from analog to digital is the expansion of choice. Uh, whether you're talking about here in the United States or increasingly anywhere in the world. Uh, in the past, people had very finite choice. They had, here in the U.S., three, four television channels, a local newspaper or two, some radio stations, you know, magazines that they got through the mail. Uh, now we have basically an infinite array of choice at our fingertips at all times, through our phone, through our tablet, through cable and digital technology. So uh, there's a, a burden of choice on individuals, uh, and in terms of communication, that means that there's a burden on the producer of a message to make it enticing enough for people to select it. On one hand, there's basically more television being produced in the United States than ever before, and you can find this in conversations from network-like leaders. Um, there are hundreds of shows being produced network uh, and um, providers like Amazon and, and Netflix making them. Um, so, on one hand, it's weird. Like, more choice is actually, for now, created uh, more demand for to fill those avenues. There's kind of a gold rush going on for the audience. Um, in some places, though, there are reductions, right? So uh, actually, Hollywood is making fewer films now than it has pretty much ever, like going all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and in local media environments, uh, things like the Oregonian are getting smaller and smaller, and if they're not running out of business, they're going to fewer days a week, um, and um, fewer pages per edition. So what kind of happened maybe is that barriers in the media environment between discrete sort of pools of choice have collapsed. So um, now maybe you're seeing more choice in some areas, but at the expense of other areas that maybe in the past weren't competing. So really in the past, television and Hollywood didn't compete so much. Well, they did, but they kind of had figured out a discrete boundary. Um, say, like, certainly before 1950, Hollywood wasn't competing with TV. TV didn't exist. Uh, in the wake of television in the 50s and into the 60s, Hollywood figured out how to make its product different. Basically, they dropped the code and they started showing sex and swearing and risque content that television didn't produce because television was broadcast over the airwaves and was regulated by the FCC. So they kind of figured out separate domains that then they operated in. Um, and now, everything being digital, like, all of that is just kind of like content. Whether it's a movie originally or a, a serialized drama, uh, in the end it all ends up sort of on your tablet, uh, and you just browse through it as if it were all 
uh, the same, and then you choose to watch it. So, I think that's produced an explosion right now in television content, probably uh, kind of at the expense of all kinds of other stuff. There's a distinguish a distinction in in mass media between new and and catalog, and catalog wasn't a category until cable television, really. Uh, you know, they never, until, like, Lucy, I Love Lucy, nobody recorded TV shows that were just aired, and the premise was that nobody would ever want to see this twice. Um, Desi Arnaz is supposedly the first person that thought, maybe we should record these, and they started recording them actually by just putting a camera on a television and recording what was going on on the screen. And that's part of why, if, you know, you're even my age, um, growing up, there were always reruns of I Love Lucy. It was the first show that they recorded. Um, and it's not until really Ted Turner, who you know owned TNT and TBS and CNN, um, Ted Turner was maybe the first person that realized, oh, I can buy a library of old movies and then just show them indefinitely in perpetuity on a cable network, and oh, it's actually a goldmine. Maybe, like, gradually in that sort of mid-late 20th century, people kind of came to discover that there is new content, and then there's catalog. And catalog is a commodity, and you, know, it's, you see uh, Netflix has basically created its instant product based around is just licensing rights to something for a new window, streaming, as opposed to network television or cable television or hotel rooms or airlines or whatever. Um eventually everything kind of just enters into that funnel and there's uh, all of these different kinds of discrete content that maybe in the past were really different like this is my newspaper and this is the television and this is the radio they all end up just funneling through your smartphones they're just bits and so more and more they're just a different place to place advertising doesn't matter what the content is it's just does it attract attention and I layer advertising on it it seems like we managed to consume more media, always. Every passing year seems to be an increase of how much media we're using. Uh, and part of that now is driven by multimedia. So, you know, watching TV while using your phone to tweet along. Um, I think, uh, you know, one of the interesting things uh, about the last few years is the amount of time people are willing to spend uh, in tiny, tiny increments, you know, scrolling through Snapchat conversations and Instagram feeds and, um, how much time can be consumed by content that really actually costs virtually nothing to produce. Um, that's a very enticing proposition for media companies. Well, if you'll spend your time on this, that's great. We have lowered our costs and you're still spending your time on it. Um, so, there's, I guess, maybe a bifurcation in the media environment where more and more you see really, really low-cost things, um, like social media posts, um, user-generated content sort of stuff, and then also tentpole, really expensive things, um, and the middle is sort of hollowed out. I guess it's interesting if you think about it from the audience's perspective. On one hand, we expect either like huge spectacles or we're satisfied by like little tiny nuggets of the like often mundane, like 
like somebody's cat. We're not so concerned about how we're entertained, we just want to be entertained. Um, and I think this is not true internationally, um, but we live very sheltered lives here in the United States, um, and we don't want to be disrupted. We want to just pretend that everything's okay and go go to work, go home from work, not think about work, just be entertained. I think when you go to other places around the world where um, the economy or geopolitical situation is a little bit tenser, you will see people that are not so content to just uh, while away the hours kind of passive entertainment. There are regional Right, there are regional hubs. Uh, lots of places around the world have heavily invested in trying to create competition for Hollywood. So, you know, the big hubs around the world, Bollywood, India, Nollywood, which is Nigeria's uh, um, kind of media center, which is basically then the center for media in, in sub-Saharan Africa. China has invested billions of dollars in a studio city. I think in the southwest part of the country, the New Yorker has done some pretty interesting reporting on that. Um, and of course, UK, you know, really everywhere in the world, wants to copy this because it's such a gravy train. Uh, you, you can make a movie um, because of copyright and the scale of the global audience. If you can figure out how to unlock this kind of formula that Hollywood has, it's hugely lucrative. Um, that being said, yeah, I mean, Hollywood is the dominant content provider for the world. Um, uh, this has already kind of happened with Hollywood, but it's now happening with television. Um, the entertainment, mass entertainment landscape is increasingly becoming internationalized. In Hollywood, you see this all the time, right? Movies basically aren't made uh, by Hollywood studios unless they have potential for an international audience, too. The gross box office receipts for movies from out of Hollywood is now larger overseas than it is domestic. So uh, certain kinds of movies just don't get made. Instead, there's an emphasis on animated movies, because they can be dubbed believably into foreign languages. Um, action movies, which have kinetic energy that translates, not so much reliant on dialogue. Not comedies. Comedies don't translate. Um, that's been going on for like 15, 20 years. Um, my favorite examples of this are um, movies that you see all the time where any kind of big action movie is now shot, not just in the United States, but usually in like four different countries or something. So you see like the scenes in Italy, the scenes in China, and like the scenes in London and the US. And you see the language change across those places. I like even more where they have movies um, like Lord of the Rings or Star Trek, where they have languages that are made up, like Klingon or Elven. So everybody in the world gets to read subtitles and nobody feels like disadvantaged. <laughs>